Hello, and welcome to Make Mine Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Jaina Hill. And I'm Elias Rosner, and this week we're taking a look back at our favorite Marvel comic run in recent memory, X-Men on Krakoa. Excelsior, an emphatic Excelsior, because Krakoa X-Men comic, yeah, is like, my problem in discussing Krakoa X-Men Mm-hmm. is that I want to be, like, greatest Marvel comic of all time. And then you always feel like you got to, like, you know, hold back. You got to couch that a little bit. Like, there's, of all time is, like, a big thing. But it's, like, really in the running, and I think that's the important thing. It's up there for me with uh, Kirby and Lee Spider, uh, Fantastic Four and Ditko and Lee Spider-Man and, like, I don't know what else I really love. Um, Simonson Thor, John Byrne Fantastic Four, maybe. Like, this is the the caliber we're talking about. Yeah, and... I think part of it is because it did some something so different from almost any modern book at Marvel uh, in that it took an anthology approach. Like Hickman's X-Men title felt like nothing else on the stands and it didn't even feel like an old, like a Hickman, co- it felt like a Hickman comic. But I don't know, I, I really wish we had gotten more issues of it. That's what I feel. At the end, I'm just like, I wanted more of this, even if he was like just doing his own thing and had no impact on anything else, I just wish we had more issues of Hickman X Men. I mean, sure. What I, the thing I wish I saw is you're so right. The anthology format was such a key to the feeling of this book, mm-hmm. and that would work so well in so many. Like, um, it would be so fun to have a journey into mystery ongoing that was like an Asgardian anthology, and every issue was just a bit different Asgardian character. It's just like a. It, yeah. it's such a good way to balance an ongoing story and to like really vividly give a sense of scene I, I it was done so well here and uh, I, I feel like that would work Detective Comics has done a similar thing over the years like back in the early mm-hmm. 2000s they kind of had an anthology thing that's where uh, Batwoman first showed up was in the pages of Detective Comics yep yeah the the modern Batwoman yeah I I was gonna say I everyone says that the anthology is dead that's not true but the Making it last in single issues has, for some reason, always been a tough sell here in the American singles market. I don't know why, uh, but I think Hickman proved that it could be done. It could be done really well, and it could be done in a different way from like Batman Urban Legends at DC, which is an anthology title, kind of. You know, it's got stories that repeat across. Sometimes it's a one-shot, sometimes it's not. That's like a pure anthology. Right. And but that's more like different events and adventures happening in Gotham yes. City. And what's so cool about um the Hickman anthology on Krakoa format was like you would get one issue like uh so Inferno just finished and that was like a big deal. Like comic book internet was freaking out, it got good reviews, it was big bu- seller, lots of buzz, right? Mm-hmm. Most of Inferno got set up in two issues, and one of them very early was like that Mystique issue. Where she yeah. says everything she intends to do by by the end of the Hickman run and bring Destiny back. Yep. Love um, that issue. Yeah, and that issue was really solid, and it was just like a prequel to a story a couple of years. I don't know why. I, I don't know why TV doesn't do this more often. I just feel like uh, with streaming, with the monthly installments and everything, you could just um, do an episode that just focuses on like one character totally. We don't always have to be touching back with Spider Man. We could just have a J Jonah issue. Oh my God! This. One of my greatest gripes with superhero TV, especially on the CW. God, fuck. Yeah, I yeah, the they pacing. got really. 
they got really used to their uh, format of uh, monster, you know, their Buffy format with monster of the week and fun ensemble ongoing drama. And we were kind of seeing that in comics too. That's uh, big superhero comics. A lot of the, a lot of similar jumping between scenes, like a lack, uh, not a lack of focus, but this what I just really liked Hickman's willingness to say, here's a cool idea. I'm going to handle in it an issue, maybe two. Uh, and then you might not see this again for a year, year and a half. Maybe it'll be picked up over by Vita in, in New Mutants, or Teeny will pick it up in Excalibur, or maybe I'll pick it up in three years or whatever. Or maybe it'll be um, a completely different writer in many, many years from now. Yeah, or it's just kind of sitting there. And I think that's one of the dangers also of doing a book in the way that Hickman did it. I'm glad we did it, but I I definitely felt like sometimes there would be a thread that I really latched onto and then Hickman wouldn't follow up. I'm like, but I want to follow up on that. Sure, and it's always a bummer when uh, yeah. it never comes back. Because, yeah. like, um, so one set of characters and themes that was, like, a big deal during Hickman's run was the Children of the Vault, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, they, who were created by Mike Carey, if I recall. Yeah, and um, I think Hickman has said that he really thought Mike Carey's run was kind of ahead of its time. I've read it. It's not my favorite, but I know what he's saying. Like, uh, yeah. there's stuff about it that's really cool mm-hmm. and now commonplace and done better often. Maybe the ideas, not the yeah. execution. But the Children of the Vault have only appeared in, I think, two, maybe three story arcs ever in comics. Oh, wow. Um, all written by Mike Carey. He had the original story where they first appeared, and I think they appeared again shortly after that. And mm-hmm. then years later, he did a, a story that I rather liked with a bunch of the young X-Men characters, mm-hmm. like Laura Kinney and yeah. uh, Dust and those guys, mm-hmm. um, facing off with the Children of the Vault. But besides that, Hickman is the first writer to pick them up in years. And I can see a lot of his creations or developments or like favorite characters or whatever uh, experiencing a similar... Uh, absence and the absence followed by a renaissance yeah ah yeah i hope the children of the vault get picked up again because that and like all of the alternate future stuff we never got the chimeras we never got the chimeras back yeah that seems like it's still the big thing that never came back to me is that um rasputin the uh time lost mutant chimera in the future uh who got sucked into the black hole Mm-hmm. was so obviously set up to have her cross into a different reality or into our universe to show up like Bishop and be like, we're here to save the future. Um, yeah. And she just she just never appeared again. She was just dead. She's going to appear again. I, I can't, I doubt that they would leave her like, okay, oh, I'm yeah. going to, I'm going to spin my theories. I'm going to spin my theories. <laughs> sure. So, I love theories. For those, I mean, if you made it this far in, you're prob- you probably know what you're getting into. But for those who don't know, Jonathan Hickman was brought on take over the X line and he said he had lots of plans he kind of had a three act structure which means uh-huh. he kind of, but he was like I can spend as much time as I want in each of the acts as long as Marvel will let me and what I think and he has since left as head of X he is no longer writing the main X-Men title he's no longer as far as we know doing any X-Men titles um, they haven't been announced as of time of recording uh, and who knows if there, another one will be announced I hope one will uh, I, I would like to win that bet, <laughs> but um, he basically was said he had all of the these kind of ideas and were building to them and they would be radical shifts in eras. My assumption is the start of whatever act two was would have been this like w- some turning point in what what Krakoa is. 
But the rest of the writer's room was like, no, we want to keep staying in this era. And for whatever reason, he decided, I guess he couldn't be doing a monthly book in that space. I guess maybe he would have kept pushing unintentionally or intentionally, or he had reached a point where he was like, this is where I would take my original idea and change it. Who knows? I don't know why, why, but I if, think if you want to get into his head, you were our listeners. Um, I'm going to yeah. suggest another podcast. Uh, Hickman was a guest on uh, Jane Miles explain the X-Men, mm-hmm. uh, which is the essential X-Men podcast. If you're listening to us and you're not listening to them, I mean, thank you, but you're probably not in the right. They're, they're doing pretty good work over there. And, um, yeah. and Hickman, the thing that I was really struck by listening to him talk about it was mm-hmm. that um, he really emphasized how he's never walked away from a story unfinished before. And it really sounded like that profoundly scares and bothers him. And he's only able to do it with the trust of the team that they've built and uh, the plans that they've agreed upon together. He He's he's happy to walk away. He knows it's going to be good. He, um, it's And it's the right choice. But, like, you can feel his discomfort. And that actually, like, cements to me the strength of the choice because he's overcoming something to, to do that tough thing. Correct. Yeah. What, so, what I my theory is that Inferno obviously is not was not meant to be the ending of his his run in the way that it is but i still think it was going to happen similarly like he was going to do something with moira and he was going to do that but i think whatever was going to transition from his planned act one to act two would have involved rasputin coming back and i think that will still happen i don't know if he will be the one to bring rasputin back But I cannot imagine that Rasputin will not show up and that will herald some major shift that I think the writer's room knows about that might come in the future. It may look completely different from what Hickman had originally planned, but I don't know. That's that's my gut feeling. I don't know when that's going to happen, if it's going to happen, but yeah, I'm, I'm weirdly excited for this next era and very... Uh, worried and sad because I wanted to know what Hickman had planned, which is weird to say because it sounds like his plans were always mutable and sometimes the best stories change as they go. I think that's the most important thing to remember is how uh, open to being flexible he was, especially considering um, Hickman's reputation as like this, uh, I, you know, I, I'm a real big enthusiast of his work, and I, 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 but I don't want to like elevate him to something more than more than a man. Um, but he's a big planner. Yeah, but he's like a big planner, and and that really comes across in his work. That's what's so pleasing about it. And so it's really interesting to see that he found a way to still do that collaboratively, and he had the flexibility. And that wasn't the important part of the plan. It wasn't that it was uh, steadfast. It was that it was um, intricate, and the intricacy mm-hmm. hasn't been lost. Um, another thing that struck me listening to that Hickman interview is... Uh, I think if I had to ask you to guess, you would know who my favorite contemporary comic book writer is, right? Hmm. I'm, I'm smiling. I don't know a favorite. Um, but I think Hickman and I share it because the way Hickman was talking about Kieran Gillen was like mm-hmm. crazy. Dude's in love with Kieran Gillen's writing. And he talked about convincing Kieran to come back. Kieran Gillen made a big deal out of uh, not doing... Uh, he said he wasn't going to do any uh, Marvel superhero work. And then he kind of uh, fudged that and he said something. I mean, he would really resent me saying that he fudged something. He's always very... Uh, careful with how he chooses his words but he said something like um i'm not gonna come back to marvel unless they offer me something totally new which is obviously so vague and he said that like three or four years ago too and came back for the eternals so yeah 
he, you know, he just, his contract with Marvel ended and he didn't know what was going to come next. And the thing that happened is they asked him to do Eternals. He thought that was exciting. And then, um, Hickman begged him to take over a particular element of his plan. And he was like, you're the guy who I think would do it best. And Kieran was so flattered that he said, yes, is my theory based on how Hickman was talking about how that conversation went down. I I believe it. And I kind of hope I trust Karen Gillen for his title that's coming. I trust that that will be very good. And I is do you think that's going to be the central book kind of pushing Jerry Duggan as X-Men book to the side? I don't know if I'm willing to say that. There's a bunch of threads right now, both new and old, that are like going through the stories as they have been. And like you said, it was kind of clear that Inferno was or not kind of. I, I I'm I'm really uh, waffling on this, but um. Inferno is, like, meant to be a more dramatic end to Krakoa and not, like, to be continued. That it was really going to be... It was called Inferno because everything was going to get burned down. was, like, maybe the original... More literally was... Yeah, the the return of Destiny was going to be more chaotic, perhaps. Perhaps. And they decided not to end that. And now we're getting, like, uh, there's a bunch of stuff where we're exploring Otherworld in a big way with Knights of X... And we're doing political stuff in Immortal X-Men, which Karen Gillan is writing. And um, Marauders is going into, like, a chaotic gay new adventure direction. Let's hope. Let's um, hope it sticks it. I, I liked what I read so far of that. Um, clearly, Ben Percy has a whole thing that involves plant people and Russian imperialism. That's uh, not boring on paper. No, I, and we're not going to be talking about... Ten lives of and deaths of Wolverine. Right I now. believe it's ten lives and X deaths. Okay, ten lives and X deaths. But I'm liking what I'm seeing from that. Definitely Ben Percy's best Marvel work in a long time. I am certain we will talk about it at great length when there's a couple yeah, more issues. Yeah, I'm ready for for more issues and to either be proven right or you know wrong. But I'm ready for those. Yeah. But I um I agree with how you foresee this all going, and I guess I'm just most excited. There's like a lot of people who've had various like catchy quotes about how uh, comic books uh get, or, I didn't Stan Lee say comic books are the illusion of change. Ah, uh, who knows? I don't know. <laughs> Somebody said that. I feel like it was Stan Lee. Probably someone cool. William Lincolnshire. <laughs> And just, like, all the the well-known truthisms that comic books will always return to the status quo. Nothing is mm. permanent. We're always going to do what we can to restore these characters to their most, like, marketable selves. Mm-hmm. I think it says a lot that um, after years of, like, like I, what happened to X-Men in the last ten years? They lived in limbo for a little while. There was a plague that wiped them all out. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, they took over the world briefly, and the Avengers had to fight them. Oh, yeah. That was weird. Yeah, and I, none of those are things that they're... I don't want to, no one's ever interested in adapting that. I'm not that interested after the fact in uh, recommending those stories to anyone but the like most fervent fans. But this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there's going to be cartoons and video games. Like I think we're going to adapt oh, yeah. Krakoa. And I mean, it's, they've already announced that the X-Men 82 or whatever is moving 92. into Krakoa. It's 92. Uh, they're calling it X-Men, um, uh, X-Men XCII. Oh, yeah. Oh, House, no, House of XCII, which is so funny. 
That is very funny. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be a, a lark. But um, but the idea of um, I guess it's the power in it. The thing that that I think is so smart. And this stuff I heard like Hickman came in with a pitch of this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. The combination of weird, goofy superhero stuff with like um. Everyone wears a costume all the time, and uh, there's a pirate ship, and time travel shenanigans, and all this stuff. Combined with, like, the really out-there sci-fi stuff of, like, there's flowers, and some of them are portals, and some of them make you live longer, and then this it, it disrupts the socioeconomics of Earth. Mm-hmm. Combined with, like, the um, tropical paradise aesthetic. <laughs> uh-huh. That's it's those three things together. It's that you've got like sci- these interesting science fiction themes and these goofy superhero adventures and this like consistent um, flowers and palm trees and uh, cocktails on the lagoon kind of aesthetic. Yeah. That just like um, whenever they make a video game where you can collect all the different costumes, there's gonna be like a cool Krakoa tropical look from one of the issues. I'm sure it's just oh, like sure. such a legendary part of the fabric of it now because of how intricate the design was and we know that it has lasting staying power because the main architect he's gone and this stuff is gonna stay like it doesn't feel like there's going back from krakoa without either a real real terrible misstep or like a serious plan in place and i wonder if this is going to become a an important and major status quo that isn't going to be easily reversed or people would want reversed which that hasn't happened in a long time in any in any long-standing like superhero comic book yeah i feel like the last comparable thing i can think of that feels similar to me is no man's land where it's oh, yeah. so changed the fabric of the batman books and made them that they were this like post-apocalyptic thing uh, where the city is collapsed and like rioting and they're and lawless and it's been uh, excommunicated from the United States and then like the Batman vigilante squad is now like uh, it, it's like a Mad yeah. Max story and mm-hmm. this has been adapted. This was a big part of the Dark Knight Rises. This is a big part of the Harley Quinn cartoon. Yeah, and even like the Arkham the ramifications City of that lasted a long time. Yeah, and that, like, uh, the comics were No Man's Land and the lead-up to No Man's Land and the fallout from that for, like, at least three years. And although Gotham City went back to being, like, a normal shithole instead of, like, a collapsed shithole. I think it only did that because of the New 52. Yeah, you might be right. Although they they refer to the earthquake post-New 52. Although, again, Marvel podcast, I couldn't parse the DC continuity. Yeah. But yeah, I, I feel like in the same way that lots of elements of No Man's Land make it to lots of disparate Batman adaptations because it's like an inherently uh, good and true premise that Gotham uh, collapses even further and that the vigilantes become like the authority and how that changes their dynamic. Mm-hmm. X-Men being immortal, starting their own nation state on a flower island, I feel like has the same staying power. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what... I'm just... I, I'm just so worried. <laughs> Right, I, and then on the other I, hand, I keep flip flopping on this. I'm like, I'm worried. I'm not worried. But th- I know this, the flip side is this whole era has been so monumental in a number of ways within like Marvel continuity, but then in our world, I know a whole bunch of friends who they're really only reading the Marvel books. They were only reading X Men stuff because of uh, House of X, Powers of Ten. 
uh, and they're still really only following or were only following like the Hickman stuff and maybe a couple other books that caught their eye from the, you know, whatever crossover. They were like, oh, this is cool. But I think one of the lasting legacies of the Hickman era is grabbing an audience outside of the normal comic sphere and then getting them to kind of stay around. Well, so I, I thought of what the flip side to my No Man's Land example is of that. That's your hope. Now, can I tell your fear? Oh, God, go for it. Imagine how good and smart and groundbreaking. I mean, I, I don't have to imagine it. I uh, actually no, I don't remember it either. And I know you don't remember it. Um, but I, you know, I thought I think about it is how we're three years into the ultimate line and you're like, this is going to go on forever. This revolutionized comics. Mm. This is the best selling thing. This is the most exciting thing. And uh, like no shade to the ultimates uh, three years in. That would have been so exciting. It's the top selling comic month out in month out. And like the Avengers movies are definitely based on that in like yeah. 2007 when they're making Iron Man or whatever. But, but people aren't our- too happy about it. <laughs> Uh, but in our last episode, we just read Ultimatum, and uh, after that, the Ultimate line never recovered. Um, and and there was like some lasting legacies, absolutely. But like, there are there isn't an ongoing Ultimate comic now, unless you count Miles Morales, which I don't. No, he's firmly six one six now. Yeah, and so um, there's no way if you're a fan of Ultimates to like follow that anymore. It's concluded. It's done because of how like gross and garbagey it got. So it's yeah. possible that some that like in seven years somebody different is writing uh, crack Cohen stories and it goes in a totally different direction. But right now that's a hard eventuality to picture because I know that the people writing about it care so much in a way that I think the people who ultimately controlled the fate of the ultimate universe didn't care in the same way about the story these characters. Yeah. And a lot of that has to do with the writer's room setup, which has been picked up and is being picked up in other aspects of D, uh, DC and Marvel comics. I don't think so much at Marvel, but in James Tynion's newsletter many, many months ago, he wrote about how he saw what Hickman was doing. and was like, I'm going to do something similar for helping coordinate the, the bat books uh, in some way to just be like, keep people on the same page, you know very different kind of of writer's room setup but it helped like detective comics and main batman stuff moving forward together in this really synced up an interesting way that still remained different in a way that i i haven't seen since uh you know brubaker and rucka were on batman and detective comics back in like 2004 yeah uh, I mean, that was crazy close because those two were uh, switching off issue by issue and doing uh, different sets of characters, uh, having parallel stories. Yeah. Well, um, more DC stuff, but one of my favorite eras. I love yeah, the, I don't know the why new we Gotham. The, I don't know what gave us the DC fever tonight. but um, I don't know. It's I just it's so crazy because um, that was just like two good friends working together and like having a nice time talking about, you know, they, they talking about their mm-hmm. work and doing it like a, a role playing game almost. Yeah. And this is just this revolutionary thing that's a group text, right? <laughs> yeah. They're just like, what right. if all the writers writing uh, related comics just were like on a group text with each other and like enjoyed that? And like, it was like a nice group text. Yeah. I was, whatever it is, it worked. And clearly they're having a lot of fun. But okay. Before we go to commercial, I have a, one question for you. Oh yeah. Hit me. Do you think that this kind of collaborative approach to sections of the marvel universe will will be tried in other areas and second and most important part 
Do you think it will succeed in other areas if it's tried? Or do you think like the X-Men are somehow unique because of the way they are? That's a great question. One of my predictions, and it still hasn't happened yet, is that Jonathan Hickman will be announced as the writer on Amazing Spider-Man. Um, uh, well, we already got Zeb Wells as the announced writer on Amazing Spider-Man. I missed this announcement. We'll have to. I'll have to return to my predictions. But regardless, my idea there being that um, Hickman would do for Spider-Man something similar, because I think there has been often times that they wanted to try that. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially like they want to have a Peter ongoing and they want to have a Miles ongoing and they want to maybe have a Spider-Gwen and a Silk. Like there's a bunch of characters that they want to uh, have. And if they had, if there was some sort of like big conflict that uh, was interesting and they all shared, um, I could see that working. But at the same time, I think you're right. I think there's something um, inherent about X-Men both in a, that it's a how much more of a soap opera it is with like a sprawling cast of characters and a huge ensemble like nothing else in all of comics really mm-hmm. um and spider-man has a great supporting cast sure but i don't know that i would read like a i mean you know if it was good i'd read anything but like i don't know <laughs> that a rhino miniseries has as much juice for me as like a juggernaut miniseries am i crazy here I don't know no. that um, the idea of them doing a Mary Jane ongoing doesn't excite me in the same way as them doing like a Moira ongoing. Huh. But if you were to ask five years ago, pre-House of X, Powers of Ten, and someone were to say there's going to be a Moira McTaggart miniseries set when she was still alive, would your what would your reaction been? I would have been like, cool, whatever, maybe I'll read that. You're right. Yeah. Um, the thing same is, thing. though, Black I, Cat. Really, I really liked um, Leah Williams' Mary Jane uh, mm-hmm. miniseries Amazing Mary Jane and then um, recently she teamed up with um, with Jed McKay right and they did uh, to do uh, Black Cat Mary Jane I don't think Leah Williams helped write that I think it was purely Jed McKay but it was Mary Jane and Black Cat I remember Leah time. Williams having something to do with uh, with something Jed McKay and those two characters because she had written the Mary Jane and he had done the Black Cat recently um, I, I wish I remembered more specifically but um, just like I've never lived in a world where there's a Mary Jane. I guess what I'm trying to say is I really don't want them to turn Mary Jane into like a super spy to give her an ongoing. Uh. But I love the idea of Mary Jane having an ongoing where she's like a struggling movie star and it's more like an Archie's kind of thing. Mm -hmm. If that's the direction they want to take it in, I think that's very bold and exciting. I I guess that's the difference is that X-Men having sprawling epic mythic lore for the whole cast of characters is very appealing to me. Mm Mm-hmm. And with something like Spider-Man, I'd be interested in them exploring the different wacky genres of Spider-Man's Amazing Friends and, like, not having the books be too similar and having them all be, like, really distinct. Okay. So that's that's my answer about Spider-Man specifically, you asked in general, and I think that kind of, like, represents why I think X-Men has the special sauce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, my thoughts are, I think the Inhumans might be the only others that would come close but even that they tried it i don't know if it would maybe they just need someone who really knows what they're doing but i mean i could also see like the space books kind of like how when abnet and lanning were handling their annihilation stuff approaching it in a slightly different way and like you might you might loop in thor and you might loop in captain marvel um but like out there in space, anything could be happening. You can have books wildly different, but all kind of building towards something, building in the same space. It's a lot bigger. Uh, I think I think there are ways to do it. I don't know if anyone's going to try it. 
I kind of hope that even if they don't try it, at least that whatever editorial houses are, you know, you've got Spider-Man, you've got X-Men. I don't remember the name of any of the other groups. I think I got an Avengers <laughs> one. Yeah. Uh, that maybe they take up this kind of like group communication so that to try and keep these books, even if they are not being planned together, at least coordinating some of the continuity things. So you don't have like General Ross being fake dead, but other books treating him as real dead. And that causing problems. Or how Bucky was the man on the wall for a minute, and that was meant that he no one could ever know that he was alive ever again, not even Steve, and then nobody ever acknowledged that the second that story was over. Yeah. I could go on. Um, <laughs> yeah, I got further thoughts about this. I think that's a really interesting um, lens and like note to close that part of the discussion on. Yeah. About, like, the lasting legacy and success in our eyes of the Hickman thing is less to do with the specifics, which rule of the soap opera, of the resurrection, just, like, how good the story was. Mm-hmm. And the real lasting legacy is just, like, how a bunch of simple improvements to the way people worked and communicated um, can be replicated um, elsewhere in the comic biz. And we just, like, see so much potential in that, and we're so excited. Yeah, exactly. So, when we come back... We are, well, we're going to be, be closing one chapter and potentially opening a new one. But until then, commercials. Hello, we're the hosts of the Multiversity Manga Club podcast. I'm Emily. I'm Zach. And I'm Walter. Each month, we pick a manga to read and discuss among ourselves. Past books include Monster, A Silent Voice, and Pokemon Adventures. We also look back on the past month's installments of Weekly Shonen Jump, discussing the highs and lows from the Viz Anthology. We've even discussed notable manga adaptations like Netflix's Death Note. At the end of each episode, we announce next month's book club pick so you can read along with us. We're always open to suggestions for future books as well. So join us on the first Friday of every month on multiversitycomics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. And welcome back. Uh, we are looking back at the Jonathan Hickman era of X-Men, you know, for a change, just talking about uh, an obscure Marvel book you might have heard of. Uh, we have this little segment that uh, we've been doing um, sporadically, but with some regularity since uh, for a long time, that Elias likes to call Baseline X, where we uh, get each other's temperature of how we're feeling about the whole X-Line, which has expanded now to 24 a separate miniseries and ongoing series uh, since House of X Powers of Ten when Jonathan Hickman started. Yeah, and um, by the time you listen to this, there will be more, but we're not covering them now. Yes, the la- we're, 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 you, the last issue that we are considering for this segment is Jonathan Hickman's uh, Inferno Number 4. Um, I think we're going to continue to do some version of this segment uh, moving forward, but I'm thinking of today as um, the, like, closing of the book on a lot of these we're putting them this is like a, the at the end of the story at this point where we feel about each of these things so i want to um i got a feeling that the at least the bottom 10 on both of our lists we've talked about a lot so i just want to briefly say what we think the legacy of that book's going to be and then move on to the next one and then as we get to the higher ones maybe uh, I, this is the focus here is on legacy on um what we hope will be remembered of this book moving forward mm-hmm yeah and all with right. that, we're presenting all your baseline or belong to X. Alright. My number twenty-four, as has been since probably issue one came out, Fallen Angels. Fallen Angels has uh, gone up and down a little bit. It is also my number twenty-four. I think it's so funny how much of a misfire that it was. I really like the creators involved. Um mm. and um 
but it just didn't work. And what a funny yeah. early failure that that would, is hardly remembered now because so much exciting stuff happened after that. Yeah, nothing in it was picked up. Nothing. That's not true. Uh, the stuff with Quanin um, losing her daughter. Oh um, yes. Was like I a guess pretty... I meant with like. <laughs> the villain. Yeah, the villain pretty much was written off. Um, I'm glad that Quanin as Psylocke has been such a staying character, too. Yes. I, and I really liked her. Um, I, you know, she was kind of a nothing character before Krakow, in my opinion. Well, she was, <laughs> unfortunately, kind of, kind of nothing. Right. Um, but... Uh, so Fallen Angels' legacy is going to be that it renewed interest in writing stories for Quanin as Psylocke instead of Betsy mm-hmm. Braddock. And um, she has stuck around and been in a bunch of really good books that we'll talk about higher up on this list and I and will continue to be. And that's great. She's a cool character. Yep. My number 23, which is continuously moved up and down but not very far, is X-Force. Uh, my number 23 is Wolverine. Huh. Uh, my number 22 is Wolverine. My number 22 is X-Force, the two Percy right. books. Yeah, Benjamin Percy's two books have sat near the bottom of our lists for most of the time, which is kind of sad because they're not actually that bad. They're not like books that I read them and I go, oh, I hate this, like Fallen Angels. But every month I leave them disappointed, not in the art, but like just, and I can never put into words why. We've come back to it multiple times, but both books, or Wolverine in particular, you have said, I have said, feels like a book that could have existed at any time. It's just yeah. a bog-standard Wolverine book, and if it was any other time, probably would be a pretty good book. But because it's in this this era, we're constantly feeling like, you know, it hasn't lived up to its potential. And X-Force has just kind of been a bit of a mess the whole time. It never really felt focused. And I think that a lot of the characterization in those books is kind of a bummer to me. Like, Quentin Choir went from being, like maybe a skinhead school shooter to being like a cuddly scamp and i like that development for him if we're gonna keep reading about the character i'd like him to be fun yes i've always hated quentin choir um i like them as i like jason aaron writing him i like him as i like karen gillen writing him i like like a mischievous quentin choir who's just kind Mm -hmm. of an asshole and ben purse's quentin choir is so dour he's just like um (laughs) he's just so unstylish uh and square and I just like, um, yeah, that's an example of, of like the, the things that are disappointing. But we're talking about uh, not specifics. I want to talk about the legacy. And I th- agree. I think this the, the legacy of this era of Wolverine will be a lot clearer after 10 lives and X deaths. Yeah. And part of the hard part is also X-Force and Wolverine are both coming back with the same numbering post X deaths and X lives. They're taking a couple months off, then they're coming back. There are five... Four, four titles, I think, that are doing that. Uh, new Mutants, X-Men, and then these two books. Uh, the uh, Marauders is getting a new number one. The rest are all new series. Yeah, and this is the kind of thing that if it, if it happens smoothly, then that's cool. And if it happens like messily, it could sink the whole ship, which is I've seen happen before. Yeah. I think that the legacy of X-Force is going to be remembered. I think the plant thing has some staying power. That's like a villain that has recurred a yeah. lot. Yeah. Um, and the only other thing that I feel like has any staying power that's like a big thing development is um, Beast has been there are people who've always hated Beast I've always rather liked Beast yeah no not not this era of Beast yeah it's like um, a lo- the, the way I see a lot of other X-Men people on the internet talk about it is that uh, a lot of things that were subtextual about Beast or things that he would say offhandedly are finally getting the focus and showing us what a monster Hank McCoy's always been Mm-hmm. I really don't like that. I like, I grew up with 90s cartoon beast. I like him <laughs> as like um, an erudite, like 
uh, boisterous nerd who uh, the bouncing blue beast. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's a. I would kind of prefer it to that he, like many X Men characters, can kind of like tend towards darkness. Yeah. But he's ultimately like a good guy. And after mm-hmm. yeah, the legacy of this era is Hank McCoy is going to need like some real serious rehabilitation because they have made all of the subtextual nastiness the core of the character. Yeah. And X Force is the book for that to happen in. Yeah. Out of any other book. And it's happened with him in X-Force before in the past, and it's been mm-hmm. good and, you know, things have come from it. Yeah, hurts my feelings a little bit, but I swear that's not the reason why I put it so low on my list. <laughs> All right, my number 21 is uh, X-Corp, which has fallen quite a ways from the last time we did this. That's really interesting. Um, uh, my number 21 remains X-Men Fantastic Four. Okay, my number 20 was Giant Size X-Men. Uh, my number 20 is Children of the Atom. Yeah. My number 19 is Way of X, which also has fallen a bit. This is so... We're going to end up talking about these books a bunch of these together. My number oh, 19 yeah. is Giant Size X-Men. All right. Let's do. Let's talk about that now. Giant Size X-Men? Uh, yeah. Um, I think the legacy of that is going to be remembered as like a fun, inconsequential thing. Hickman talked about a couple of intentions he had with that on the J.M. Miles Explain the X-Men interview. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Part of it was that uh, he had a bunch of he had a bunch of big ideas for Storm, and this was pretty much one of the only times he said Marvel told him no about something. <laughs> but it was going to be revealed that Storm was pregnant with T'Challa's baby, and that it was infected by the by the Children of the Vault, and so she put she and and Phantom X put the baby in the world where time runs faster. Mm-hmm. And a teenage version of this character was going to emerge who was going to be, like, trained by Phantom X um, and, like, had a complicated relationship with his legacy as a Krakoan mutant and um, the heir to Wakanda. Oh. And um, Hickman had a whole—and that was—Giant Size X-Men was going to basically be that story. And you can see it in there, right? There's a bunch of pieces of that in there. But that was the big thing that Marvel said no, and that's when they kind of pulled it back into just being more of an art showcase that was episodic. Yeah. And I think I think that's going to be the legacy of Giant Size. It was a compromised experiment. Uh huh. Totally. That had beautiful art for some of it, depending on what you like. There was something for everyone. That's true. Uh, and just kind of a an entire mess of a thing that sadly didn't was was not very uh, coherent. <laughs> Yeah, it was like a weird uh, half baked side quest. I'm gonna go back and read it again sometime though, because the art was that good. Okay, all right. So my number 18, X-Men Fantastic Four, which, after sitting very low for a very long time, has risen for me. Uh, I think the legacy of X-Men Fantastic Four is going to be another one of those early like experiments that <sighs> should have been better than it was, and we don't know why it didn't. Like, well, it the, fe- the big it, reason... I feel like there was some form of interference... Because it wasn't under the um, X-Men offices, it was under the Fantastic Four offices. And I think this might be one of the few semi-duds from Chip Zdarsky. Because it's not a bad series, but like, a lot of the choices were weird. Usually he's got this ineffable charm, even when he's writing yeah. like, more serious stuff. And this, yeah, and this was kind of uncharming in this way that sometimes, uh, I don't know, it felt really work for hire in this way that his work really does. Yeah, and it, it kept feeling like they were, they kept building it up as like, this is going to be important, but then it wasn't. Um, some of it, yeah, I mean, some of the story, like um, that Professor X and Magneto did this shady thing to Reed Richards to torture him has come back a couple times in an interesting way. Yeah. That's like, that's like a, and that Frank, was the... Franklin Richards' struggle with 
you know, his mutantness. Or his was lack this thereof. the stories? No, he. It was in the pages of Fantastic Four that he was told he's not a mutant, right? Yeah. Shortly after this, people were real mad at Mr. Dan Slott about that. That, that story. might have been why this this series may have had some struggles because Slot was preparing that. Right. Well, and so I was going to say, uh, my only thing I would amend your your take on the series is that. Um, I don't think that, um, I wouldn't call it interference because that describes such intentionality, but I think all the things we were talking about in the first half of the episode about the writer's room approach was not here because Zdarsky and the editors didn't get to participate in the writer's room. And so I think the struggles we're feeling are when a person is made to write a story that exists within that ecosystem who like clearly isn't participating. And there's a couple of another book that we're going to talk about shortly, I think, that does this more successfully. We'll, we'll see. I guess we'll we'll find out which book that is. All right. What was your number 18? My number 18 was Empire X-Men. Okay. So my number 17 is Children of the Atom. Let's talk about Children of the Atom then. Let's do it. So I'm surprised. Mine, Children of the Atom still fell for me, but it seems like it's mu- it was much lower for you. So you go first. Um, I just didn't really enjoy it that much. Like, mm. I appreciated it. I like the last issue was my favorite. And there's like scenes that I remember because Vida Yalda's really memorable scenes. Mm-hmm. And I know that there was a bunch of stuff happened behind the behind the scenes with like uh, scheduling shifting, and uh, the book was went from an ongoing to a miniseries at one point. I was, I was pretty shocked when I realized that it was ending. Yeah, COVID I think really affected it too. Yeah, I, I, I remember hearing something about that, but um, the book really seemed like it lacked an identity to me because it. The are they mutants or not mystery ended up being such a nothing. Yeah. Um, and if instead it was, they're like, uh, this is the story about a bunch of kids who um, don't live on Krakoa and are like enamored by its culture. And it's going to, and, and that was like a clearly the direction and the core of the book. That was the stuff that was really strong. And it, I love the idea of giving a book to like uh, people looking out from, from outside of the story looking in. Mm hmm. And I felt like it didn't do enough with that idea. And there was so much time spent on all these other things that were uninteresting and ended up uh, being part of like a different version of the story. Hmm. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I I don't have much more to add on that other than I think <laughs> Children of the Atom was just I, I don't remember much of it, even though I have it sat much higher up on the list than you do. I think that's just because I found enough of Vita's writing to be charming to want to follow but it felt so underbaked and half-baked the whole time and didn't help that the artists kept shifting and it just felt like another incomplete book that fell apart by the end but unlike unlike X-Men Fantastic Four I guess this is the edge I give Children of the Atom Mm mm-hmm that never felt work for hire for me. That always felt Vita yes. Ayala's passion for those characters like really came across, and like I admire that, and like that I could feel that as a reader. Yes, yeah. Um, it struggled with. <laughs> Interestingly enough, it struggled with its identity, uh, and was not really given the space to fully explore it. I'm sure that was uh, en- enhanced the experience for some people. Mm-hmm. All right. What was your number seventeen? Uh, my number seventeen was Way of X. All right, let's talk about that one. Uh, the more I think about it, the more it sours for me. It was just a, a smarmy book that thought it had really good answers to questions that I think should have been asked, but uh, were just poorly asked and poorly answered. And I'm sorry, Sai, this was not your best book. Yeah, this kind of turned me off to the endeavor of Sai Spurrier writing X-Men stuff. 
I guess there was like I liked um I always like how he writes Dr. Nemesis. I like his voice for Legion and attitude, even if I wasn't that interested in what Legion was doing. Yeah, it was it was a book that used characters that I think he was very he wanted to work with and that he was familiar with. Uh and that was to its detriment. The truth is it, it was a chore to read. Um, I like thinking about those thoughts and I was glad to have like more ingredients in my constant imagining of life on Krakoa. Mm-hmm. Um, and he contributed a lot of that. And that's why I have it as high as I do, because yeah. like, um, I don't think I like the development that Stacy X runs a brothel that doubles as an orphanage. Yeah. But I would have always been wondering what Stacy X is doing. Just like, I wonder what Stacy X was doing in the Krakoa era. And now I know. And again, I don't like that, but I do kind of like, if anyone ever asks, now I know, wherever the children on Krakoa go, uh, they can live in this big group home. Yeah, and this this will be the only time that anyone actually talks about more mutants and sex in general, it seems. But, yeah, Mar- Marvel as yeah. a company is pretty uh, sex negative, I feel. Yeah, the, but like the first, the first issue or two of this series was near the very top of my list when it first came out. Um, it was, I think the focus on Nightcrawler was important and he just became such an incidental character by the end that it was not what we wanted or was presented at the beginning. And I, I think I'm going to remember it as the book that tried to do Nightcrawler and just, just gave me Legion instead. I think I'm going to remember it as uh, the book that really soured me on Size Spurrier. I just like, I'm really dreading his featured contributions because it was such a tremendous chore to read. I really wish he gave his notes to somebody bouncy. I think he'd. I, we'll see. Like I said, he can I do really great work. To be John Constantine Hellblazer, and he can do this. Yeah, I, I liked his. I liked uh, his Legion comic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, number, number sixteen. 16 Empire X Men. Hey, I have just, that on my number eighteen. Yeah, my this one was I think just ton bunch of fun whole time. It was a it was a tie into an event. Felt like a tie into an event had about as much impact as a tie-in to event, but the beginning and end was a lot of fun, and the middle was, it was fine. Well, this is what, this is the vibe that it would have been more fun if Giant Size X-Men had. Because Giant Size X-Men is missing something, which was that whole story about Storm's kid, that they just got, like, yanked out of the middle. Yeah. And Empire X-Men's not missing anything, because it's just, like, a goofy thing. They brought back uh, horticulture. Freaking love horticulture. I hope they show up and fight every hero in the Marvel Universe. (laughs) Yeah. And, um... Yeah, it didn't really like, do much for continuity. The reason I have it so low is because of how forgettable it was, but like, I'll always remember that image of Magneto killing a bunch of plant people by pulling satellites out of space. Didn't they call one of the issues uh, plants versus humans versus zombies? Uh, pl- yeah, I think it was plants versus humans versus mutant zombies. You know, I have the screenshot of that page on my computer because I just couldn't stop laughing at it. Yeah, that 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 will be its legacy, and I'm glad of that. And it's your introduction to Explode Boy. Oh, yeah, it was. Um, we're going to read that, that comic one day. Maybe uh, not on the podcast. Maybe, <laughs> maybe not on the podcast. All right, what was your number 16? My number 16 was X-Corp. Ah, now we can talk about it. <laughs> wow, we had ours very far apart. Yeah, I think Teeny Howard wrote the shit out of X-Corp. Um, I think the problem was that... I have, actually, I, I have been thinking about this a lot. I think that the problem with X-Corp was that it was the wrong book for the wrong time. Mm-hmm. There have been a lot of books in the last 20 years, most of them written by or imagined by and then picked up by somebody else, Grant Morrison. Mm-hmm. 
where Grant Morrison will be like, you know, superhero, Batman is kind of like a franchise and like a corporation. And like the X-Men have like a lot of millionaires on the team and they like have a lot of jets and shit. So clearly they have like a whole finance. He just thinks about the, excuse me, they just think about the, uh, the finances mm-hmm. of, yeah. um, of this so much. And then being Grant Morrison, they get into like, and a corporation is like a God that you were just like crazy Grant Morrison shit. <laughs> uh huh. And so Teeny Howard's X Corp is picking up on a lot of Grant Morrison X Corp stuff that they introduced in their run on X-Men in 2004. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I didn't know that was part of new, new X-Men. Yeah, that was, um, it was probably the, one of the weaker threads in new X-Men, but it's there. And, uh, Kieran Gillen's written about it a couple times too. Huh. Uh, in Kieran's X-Men run, earlier X-Men Interesting. run. But what the book that came out that made me understand what X, why X Corp was such a, a whiff for most people mm-hmm. is Spider-Man Beyond, because Spider-Man mm. Beyond is doing a much better version of the corporate superhero. Yeah. Because uh, Ben Riley is is paranoid that the corporation is surveilling him, so that's obviously very like thematically resonant to what American corporations are doing to us right now. Mm-hmm. And the corporation is like his support network, but also his ultimate antagonist. Yeah. And I think that's the key. I just don't think there's a lot of stomach right now for uncritical corporate espionage and hijinks. I feel like um, if you're going to be writing a story about corporate life and it isn't obviously critical of that, um, I'm less interested. Yeah. Uh, X-Corp was in the similar way to Children of the Atom, originally announced as an ongoing and then shortened to a mini unceremoniously. I think just because of the, this wasn't because of COVID, I think. I think no. this was just poor reception. Yeah. I don't know what... X-Corp continues to fall for me because I was just bored. I was bored. I remember almost nothing from this series other than it had inconsistencies between issues and I could not care less about any of the characters in it, which sucks because Teeny Howard is a very good writer. And I think Albert Fauci did Fauci? Fauci did a pretty good job as the artist on, on the issues. But it just the why this book now question came up for me as an answer of we didn't need this and it was not proven to me why I was wrong. And I think that might be its its enduring legacy is we were trying to, you know, flesh out this other aspect of, you know, how does Krakoa relate to the business world? Because corporations are so important. And it right. didn't really do anything interesting with it. It tried to, but I don't think it succeeded. And it was it was torn between what it, the two poles of superhero and corporate espionage and never reconciled the two. I thought that there was one really strong thematic element that a lot of people were overlooking the entire time with that, Mm -hmm. which was that the bad guy in the first issue demands that Angel choose between his identity. He's like, um, people are divided in the world into mutants and humans, but we know that's fake. There's new money and there's old money, and you and Mm. me, we're old money, and we need to, like, prevent, uh, you need to join me and fight Krakoa because Krakoa is going to, like, change the world of the old money wealthy. Ah, and I thought that was such an interesting theme. And Teeny Howard explores it throughout the series. Yeah, it, it just like that it didn't end up being enough of the focus and it wasn't obvious enough. But I always thought that was a strong idea. And I think if there's any lasting... I think the likeliest thing is there'll be no lasting legacy and this will be a completely forgotten footnote uh, to Teeny Howard's much stronger and more well-regarded work. Mm-hmm. But um, 
I think if there's anything that uh, I would take away of this if I was on the X team, it's the relationship between Angel and Penance, which I think um, was, like, juicy, and they had some, like, cool sexual tension, and I like the two rich bitches uh, falling for <laughs> each other, again, and, like, ba- their backs against the world. Uh-huh. Or back-to-back against the world, rather. Yeah. They, like, um, a couple of other people wrote them as a pair, and even if it's not romantic, I really like them as a duo, and I hope that's the lasting legacy. Okay. All right, so my number 15 was Cable. My number 15 was Juggernaut. Ooh, my number 14 was Juggernaut. Uh, then let's talk about Juggernaut. That's okay. the other book where I'm like, this was obviously written by somebody who was not participating in the X-Men writer's room. Yes, but it ultimately didn't matter. Right, because it was a more it, it was less like monumental for the story than uh, Fantastic Four X-Men. And I'm almost positive that Juggernaut was edited by the X office, even if Fabian Nicieza was not, like, enthusiastic about the group text, because he, who, who dis? <laughs> Which, like, yeah. is chill. No shade to Fabian Nicieza ever. Uh, I accidentally subtweeted him one time, and he called me out very, like, righteously and politely and respectfully. And I, now I'm just like, always like, oh God, I don't mean that. I love Fabio Nicieza. He seems like the coolest guy. And he was a highlight of one of the darkest eras of comics. Just like, love that guy and his work. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Juggernaut, I think, is going to be another one of those. It's going to be remembered as fun. It's going to be remembered within the Juggernaut canon as, you know, just kind of an aside. But it's going to be, what I think, a miniseries that people return to in the same way that, like, Modox 11 and and a lot of those weird, fun little miniseries are across the years. <laughs> I hope you're right. I don't think you're right. You don't think I'm right? You don't think people are going to return to this? Uh, what about D-Cell? So, I, I'm going to say, I really would love for the legacy of this comic to be D-Cell, but that's already not happened. She hasn't shown up in a single other comic since... I hope she comes back. Someone's going to be like, D-Cell. She's going to show up, team it up with, like, Darkhawk in some, like, Nova annual in 13 years. You mark my words. Oh. Maybe, uh, and, um, I think that what's funny about this Juggernaut series, I think it's completely, like, um, unmemorable in a pleasant way. I liked reading it. It was a blast. But Mm -hmm. what's funny is the only reason anyone would ever return to this, the only reason that everyone's like, ah, Fabian Nicieza did, like, a pretty good Juggernaut miniseries in, uh, 2020 or whatever is because it happened right in the middle of Krakoa, and so... Lots of people, I'm sure, will come back to this run in general, and then they'll be like, do I need to read this Juggernaut comic? And then they'll read it and be like, kind of. <laughs> they'll be like, I don't regret this decision. I mean, me neither. I'm a well-documented Juggernaut lover, I'm a Juggernaut Black Tom lover. It's Not as funny much as because you have, I think you have become more and more harsh towards the Juggernaut mini as we've gone on, and I've become softer on it. I really liked it when I was reading it, and it, yeah, and just like it doesn't... When I'm ranking it against all these other books and thinking about it as part of the story, it's just like, uh, it's more fun than Empire X-Men, uh, which is saying something, that book was a blast, but, uh... Yeah, yeah, uh, all right. What's your 14? My 14 is Excalibur, and now we're getting into... So everything Juggernaut up is is the good, good zone. Like, everything here is good. We're we're just talking about which I like better, but Excalibur, that's pretty low for a core book. Yeah, well, well, we're gonna talk about it, because it's at my number 13. What... Yeah, Excalibur has fallen a while, in part because other books were just so much better, but also I think Excalibur had just been super weak near the end. Post Ten of Swords, I think Excalibur suffered. Even though it was doing some interesting stuff, it uh, it, it kind of lost its way a little bit, and I think it was kind of it was spinning its wheels until the end of Inferno. Um, 
yeah, to, I felt to that rede- too. redefine itself. I've never loved an Otherworld story. Mm-hmm. Otherworld is one of those comic book things that just like, I feel like every time there's an Otherworld story, they're either murdering every character in that cast and then like resurrecting them in the next one. <laughs> yeah. Like the Green Lantern Corps or whatever. Uh-huh. Oh, what's up to the fucking DC? Like the Nova Corps, how about? Oh, yeah, that, that, that also has happened multiple times. Right, I feel like, I think currently the status quo and in Marvel is that Nova Corps is gone. I think the S.H.I.E.L.D. is, like, collapsed, too. And that, yes. I can't, I, I don't care defunct. about S.H.I.E.L.D. I, there was, like, a, but I can tell you, like, six different interesting times they made S.H.I.E.L.D. defunct. I'm so sick of it. Um, this might be the most interesting time, and I would never know. Um, but, so, like, um, the all the other world stuff was the least engaging to me. The Ten of Swords stuff, like you said, was good, so leading up to that was great. And then, like, I think my favorite Excalibur story, there was, like, a quiet character meditation right after Ten of Swords. Mm-hmm. And um, there was that two-part arc where they go to the manor house of Cullen Bloodstone, who's a real dick, and then they, like, get into a fight with him. Yeah, I do not remember that. And they're, they're hunting werewolves, and then they end up, that's oh, where they, they yes. adopt the werewolf puppy. That was just, like, such a fun, zany combination of just, like, good elements of the Marvel Universe. Colin Bloodstone's a cool character. That was a cool take on him. Making him the villain to the X-Men was really fun, too. Bringing that was the Amazing Baby, right? Yeah, and that's the introduction of Amazing Baby. Yeah. And the werewolves are, like, an old, weird idea from 80s Excalibur. Just, mm-hmm. like, it was just, like, a fun story that, like, put the ingredients together in a tasty way. Yeah. And the other I, world I, stuff was, mm-hmm. like, homework for me. I was going to say, I think it became too obsessed with Otherworld, even though I appreciated a lot of the time. My favorite was just watching Shogo the dragon fly around with Jubilee. And they kind of got sidelined in favor of uh, uh, Opaluna Saturnine and her endless, endless machinations and fighting with Merlin. I, I just don't care. Yeah, and it's such a good X-Men cat. Like, I really like that uh, what became of Richter, where now he's a druid, and his powers are, like, connecting him to magic in a way. Mm-hmm. And this has been some of the best characterization Betsy Braddock has ever gotten. Uh, she yeah. feels like a strong hero who I want to read adventures of more than ever before. Yeah. Although, I gotta tell you, I don't like the way the purple hair clashes with the red and blue costume. Well, maybe that'll be fixed in whoever's drawing. Is Marcus Toe coming back to draw Knights of X? I don't I think can't remember. so. Did you see the cover of Knights of X number one? I have not. I'm excited. I'll show you after the show. It's like okay. the funnest cover. It's a, a, like a medieval pastiche of um, the famous uh, cover where Wolverine's posing in front of the wanted posters. Oh, nice. Uh, it's like it's a good one. Um, okay. So yeah, I like, I like Excalibur, but a lot of it wasn't engaging once its purpose had been served. Yeah. Even though I like a lot of its stories. Yeah. Well... I think Excalibur's legacy, it's going to be hard to feel for that one because it's rolling right into Knights of X. And like you said, I think at this point, once we've reached this, uh, almost, yeah, well, everything above this, I don't know. Do you want to litigate their what their legacies are going to be? I think there's going to be a lot of legacies. I think the, the, the strong characterization that Tini Howard gave to characters... Apocalypse is forever... Like, people love... I, I have a friend oh, yeah. whose boyfriend read uh, X-Men for the very first time, uh, having maybe seen one of the movies when he was a kid. <laughs> uh, started with Hoxpox and just was reading uh-huh. it all the way through uh, from the library, like, every issue. Nice. Fell in love with Apocalypse, and Apocalypse is his number one favorite X-Men character. Okay. He, uh, I keep on, I, 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 he keeps asking me like when Apocalypse is coming back. He's so excited. Um, 
but like uh, Apocalypse had a wonderful characterization. Richter and Betsy, like I was just saying, uh, there was a, I, I like Teeny's uh, characterization for Pete Wisdom a lot. Uh, there was a really good uh, Rogan Gambit stuff where uh, mm-hmm. and Teeny Howard's been like the the all time uh, definitive voice for the, those two characters. I think. Mm-hmm. So I just think Teeny's good characterization people will uh, will take forward and like her confusing lore someone will pick up on and it will be in a weird book that you and I will read. <laughs> That's true. All right, what's your number 13? My number 13, and maybe the most controversial placement on this list, is Inferno. Ooh. Oh, we will get to that. Yeah. It might not be for a bit. Yeah. I'm excited to hear that. You put Cable above Inferno? Definitely. I put Cable very high. God. All right. Well, number 12 is the Hellfire Gala. My number 12 is also the Hellfire Gala. Okay. I... I think Hellfire Gala was a weird experiment that I found a lot of fun, but definitely kind of inconsequential, if we're being totally honest. But the at the same time, at the same time, Planet-Sized X-Men was part of that, and uh-huh. that was a standout highlight. And I, again, I love the, I love what they did with the experiment of Hellfire Gala to try and do all of the interesting, you know, playing with time and uh, messing around and all sorts of fun stuff that, I don't know, I think it's just going to be remembered as one of the weirder X crossovers of the era and a strange artifact of the way they did things. But I don't think it's going to be remembered as, um, you know, as something bad or like we were, I think it's going to be remembered as it was when it was happening, which was a lot of fun, kind of strange, but, you know, only something that could happen in this era of X-Men. The the obvious lasting legacy is the all the outfits. And also the election of the X-Men. Oh, yeah. The X-Men election is something that they have continued to do, like, online and stuff, which is fun. But I just, yeah. like, we're going to see cosplay of some of those outfits at cons. And there's going to oh, be, like, true. Uh, and they're going to be uh, DLC costumes in all future video <laughs> games. There's going to be, like... Um, in future stories, someone's going to, like, make an allusion to one of those outfits and have a character being wearing something similar, and then you're going to be like, oh, my God, I caught that reference. Like, mm-hmm. uh, the, the costumes from that is going to be the big legacy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, is that... Do you think that's everything we have to say about Hellfire Gala? Yeah, I've talked about all more. these uh, series a lot of times because <laughs> we love to do it. That's a good point. Uh, my number 11 is Marauders. Jerry Duggan's Marauders. Which yeah, now we have to specify. That's true. We're not going to talk about that for a little while, though. A little while yet. Um, my number 11 is Ten of Swords, actually. Okay. Interesting. My number 10 is another Duggan joint, X-Men. That's so interesting. That is also my number 10. Oh, so we'll talk about that. So X-Men, we only really have, as of this, we're counting only X-Men 1 through 6. Um, but Pre-Captain Krakoa. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So maybe one through five. I I think Captain Krakow shows up in six. Yeah. Um, five is a better cutoff point. But I think it's been fine. I think it's been fun. I think it's going to take a while for it to really find its groove. Uh, that can, tends to happen with the Duggan comics, I found. It takes a little bit to find his groove. Um, but I've been enjoying it so far, and we really won't know the legacy of this for a while yet. Yeah, there's so many interesting factors here. So, I mean, th- what's interesting is the vibe of it feels like Duggan trying to do a Hickman thing. A little bit, yeah. We're right at the beginning. He sets up all these new interesting villains and a couple of, like, weird recurring villains who've shown up before. Mm-hmm. 
and some of them have like come and gone and like uh woven through the story but then like uh there's been new stuff there was a whole issue devoted to like Jean Grey fighting Nightmare oh yeah yeah which was awesome but like a uh, great that... cover yeah, uh, but that issue didn't, like, have a lot to do with the various interesting ongoing bad guys. So, like, Duggan, like you said, is is setting up, up a lot and taking his sweet time. Yeah, yeah. I think it's going to be fun. I don't know if it's going to be amazing, but it's definitely going to be fun. It's top ten. Yeah, right now. that's true. That's true. All right, now we can talk about Ten of Swords. It's at my number nine. It's so weird because when Ten of Swords was coming out, I was like, this is a lot. And I don't know if this is, uh, I love it. Uh, but weirdly, Ten of Swords I was one of my favorite parts of the whole story so far. Oh, yeah. It, it's because it took that swerve in the middle that it's as high for me as it is. It's just, I remember that, those battles and that, that whole section, as well as some of the hunt for the swords and, like, all that buildup. It's like, what are they going to do with the swords? I, I remember all the hype, and then it didn't live up to the hype but it lived up to it in a completely different way. And I yeah. really appreciate that about Ten of Swords. It was such a pleasant fake out because it seemed like it was going to be this like uh, encyclopedia of like weird sword weights and maps of different dimensions and mm-hmm. this list of nonsense words. And it was like, I was like, really, it really felt like homework. And then in the middle, they're like, Nope, it's just like the silliest superhero showdown of all time because magic and mm-hmm. and yeah. then it was just like pure. So it just like it was setting up all this lore stuff, which still exists in the background of the Marvel universe. If anyone ever wants to pick up on it, and some of it like uh, has simmered for a while, but like it delivered on just the zaniest, purest, funnest superhero action imaginable. Exactly. Yeah, I loved it. Ton of fun. Totally. What was your number nine? My number nine was X-Factor. Okay. My number eight is New Mutants. Well, now you can see just how high I put it, because my number eight is Cable. Damn. I clearly did not like Cable as much as you did. I I mean, I think I just had fun with it, but it was a bit, uh, it was just okay for me. I, I've grown to like Cable over the years. I hated Cable when I was a kid. Hmm. <laughs> Just like I wasn't into yeah. the being old and having guns and scars thing. I thought that wasn't a fun way to be pouches. A Can't forget the pouches. I yeah, couldn't forget the pouches. Um, but I've liked a bunch of Cable comics over the years now, and I've liked uh, Cable's presence and stuff, and I've grown to like him. And what I loved about this Cable series was that um, the whole run of it was like a sample platter of just like all sorts of different Cable type stuff. Mm-hmm. And then the final arc was, to me, the definitive Cable story, because it was just the best version. I The artwork uh, by Chris Anka was, like, a big part of this. But um, the final arc where young Cable and old Cable need to team up to fight evil Cable. Is, Chris Anka uh, did, the, did the art on that who, section? I thought it was Phil Noto. I meant Phil Noto. I'm so sorry. I was thinking of a Chris Anka Cable cover that I like. Ah, uh, okay. Um, and I mixed the two up. Apologies to both talented artists. Uh, the Phil Noto art, which makes much more sense and is much more what those books looked like. It's Phil Noto. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, like, um, the story of Cable traveling through time to help himself fight strife is, like, mm-hmm. the core of what Cable is as a character. And that book just boiled it down to, like, the coolest, most, like, metal, silly version of that with all of the Cable aesthetics just, like, way out there. And um, I thought that that was so fun to read. I liked how diverse it was while still... And it really sold me on Kid Cable, who is a character I was disinterested in also. Hmm. Yeah. 
I don't think it's going to have much of a legacy like some of these other books we're about to talk about, but I do think that if anyone is ever, like, cable curious, I would, in a heartbeat, recommend this run to them. I believe... I... Sorry. I concur with that. Uh, I just... I don't know. Just the more I, I try to remember it, the more it kind of slips through my grasp like the what the what of it all and it, it meandered a little too much for for my taste i think it was just too decompressed in the way it approached it i still liked it it's it sits midway through my pack and the only i i, I never know where to put cable because i really did enjoy it but i'm never like yeah i liked that a lot more than than hellfire gala or or whatever oh totally it's, it's one of those weird weird books where I think its legacy is going to be people people will come back to it and be like this was a good good run of cable and I see why kid cable had to stick around for as long as he did. Uh and now we've got uh, this really fun old man cable. Yeah, and, and just Duggan doing action. Yeah. Duggan is so like uh such so cuddly that him doing action guy dialogue is just like fun. Yeah. Yeah. I I think the what's it called? Those, those that last issue did a lot the um the the one shot did a lot to affect cable's rankings or or kid you know how it worked in totally yeah yeah and a, a good um a good epilogue to a good series mm-hmm. number, seven, number seven x factor i'm sad it sits so low yeah but... that's a book that's always gonna be like uh really i mean for me at least i'm gonna remember the reaction to the uh the spotty issue. ending yeah, and it felt the most diverted by Ten of Swords, sadly. Yeah. I, I don't think it ever got to live up to its potential as a long-running, like, detect the detect, detective series of the of Krakoa. I got cut short, and that made me really sad because I, I loved this book. I really loved this book. I think just like straight up Leo Williams might be my favorite writer of anyone who represented on this list of 24 titles. Mm-hmm. Um, she's such a strong writer and it's incredible how she like effortlessly um, unravels complicated history of all these characters, but does so in a way that feels like a story and not yeah. like a Wikipedia update. And yeah. there were so many, um, so many things she did with the X Factor character, those characters that were like, um, I recently read the run where uh, Siren got haunted by the goddess Morrigan. Uh huh. Like I read that just a couple of years ago, and when she touched upon that, that was like a, I was like the one fan who was like, oh my god, when are they ever going to follow up that? And it was a great story. It was like a great haunted house story. Oh yeah, loved that issue. Um, but. For me, it's always going to be about potential and yeah. how, yeah, the messy ending really marred it. But I think it's going to have a huge lasting legacy, I think, on what X Factor means and on every single one of those characters, I feel like, took huge steps forward. For sure. I think Especially, every character Leia Williams has touched has had that kind of effect. Like, I, we talk about all the time that Age of X-Men Extremists miniseries and how the, those characters were redefined in our in our minds because oh, of that. Oh, yeah. Me, it yeah. meant so much to me. Yeah. All right. So what's your number seven? My number seven is Trial of Magneto. Oh. 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 I know. Oh. oh. All right. My number six. We can finally talk about it. Inferno. Hey. Yeah. It is not... It, it has fallen, which is strange because it's the final Hickman joint. And 
as most people listening to this know, my, the Hickman books have always been very, very high up. Totally. And I mean, number six is nothing to scoff at. But Inferno, I just don't think was as strong as the other books that were above it. And I, I could not tell you exactly why. I think it just tried to do a lot. I think it succeeded in most of what it did, but it's always going to be kind of overshadowed and haunted by being the last X-Men book for Hickman, but not having the same major impact as something like the way he he did Secret Wars. It feels like it's pulling its punches. Yeah. But at the same time... What punches they are. Oh my God. And the, the way he resolved everything with Destiny and Moira... I'm really excited to see the fallout of all the stuff that happened in Inferno. And that's that's my problem. I'm really excited to see the fallout of the event. But the event itself was solid. It also felt like it could have been a couple issues of the regular X-Men title had he continued writing it. The one thing I want to say, like, from a writer criticism perspective that's so good about Inferno... Mm-hmm is if you played out the events of Inferno, like, in order and gave the readers all the information, it's all quite simple and obvious... Uh huh. Um, like this whole time, the mystery has been like, how is Mystique gonna resurrect Destiny? And the answer is really simply, she shapeshifts into looking like Professor X, and then like tells uh, the five to do so, and they do it. <laughs> yeah. And obviously, like Mystique's gonna shapeshift and trick somebody into doing a thing. That's what Mystique does. But what Hickman does so masterfully is like withholds information from the reader, so that the moment you find out it was Mystique all along feels like a huge reveal. Even though, of course, that's how she's gonna approach that situation. It's the only thing that ever made sense. Yeah, exactly. Um, and he's just a really good writer. And Inferno was an example of his really good writing. But yeah, I feel like um, with all of the pulled punches and everything, um, it couldn't be as definitive a statement on some of those themes as I think it clearly wanted to be. Yeah. And we don't know its legacy going forward. I mean, it's going to be huge. Like, there's like uh, there's going to be a oh, Moira yeah. book. There's going to be uh, the Quiet Council book because the politics are so disrupted right now. There's Whatever gonna... Doug Ramsey is up to. Yeah, Doug Ramsey's in like a hugely different place with all his sweethearts. Mm-hmm. All right. What was your number six? My number six was S-W-O-R-D Sword. Ooh. All right. My number five was our good friends, Helian, Hellions, Hooligans, Hooligans. My number five was X-Men Volume 5 by Jonathan Hickman. Oh. My number four was Sword. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Love Sword. Sword. Great space book. It's also over now. I'm bummed and disappointed about that. Same. Uh, uh, it's like Ewing on Guardians. Both of his space books, they ended. They ended early. Or maybe not early, but like they ended right when I thought they were getting amazing. Like they were really good, but it felt like there was the momentum and now they're done. Uh, even still, it's at number four because what an, what a way to go out. Totally. And... um. If, if there's going to be a legacy of S.W.O.R.D., it's just like, this is how to do a Marvel space book right. There was so many yeah. cool genre aesthetic ideas put into this. Like, I love giving everybody different color uniforms and, like, clear roles <laughs> on the ship. Yeah. And I think he he's one of the few writers out of everyone who uses the data pages in a way that feels like in the same spirit of, as House of X and Powers of Ten. Yeah, totally. Uh, Leia Williams, I think, also kind of approached it, but I really don't think any of the other writers really get it 
Teen Howard approaches it, but like I was gonna ben say Percy Teeny and Howard Jerry generally. Duggan, they both just are like, here's a memo. And I'm like, god damn it. Teeny Howard has grimoire pages. Text. Those are cool. They are cool. But we're talking about Sword. Um, yes. Yeah. Sword, and Sword introduced so many crazy ideas. It had such a huge ensemble cast. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just this way that, like, uh, Al Ewing, every one of those scenes w- w- had such a conflict. Like, I vividly remember um, all the scenes where uh, Magneto uh, blows off Fabian Cortez for Peeper. <laughs> what a great mm-hmm. gag. And, like, what a strong piece of characterization for all three of those characters. For Peeper. Everybody's yeah. favorite character, Peeper. Um, yep. And then, like, um, I I love uh, Manifold is, like, one of my favorite uh, underused characters. And here he's used so well. Oh, such cool Manifold stuff. I love a good... I, I don't need a Manifold ongoing. Just, like, every so often give me a story like that showing all the crazy shit that Manifold gets up to in his time. Yep. And I'm happy. I think that's going to be... It's... it's... It, that's what we're going to remember most about Sword, definitely. Everything everything over here is going to be like a big list of legacy, though, because every character is affected in these books and, like, used so well. Oh, yeah. And there's, like, Mysterium is obviously, like, an ongoing... Uh, mm-hmm. uh, is it really called that? That's the same as the fucking uh, cryptocurrency? Yeah. Uh, no, that's Ethereum. Oh. Well, here, there I go. Um, someone make a Krakoan cryptocurrency if you haven't already. I no, don't. buy it. Don't. Please, God, no. Please, no. <laughs> And they're going to do it with or without me, and I will not participate. Yeah. Number four? Mm-hmm. Uh, my number four is New Mutants. Let's talk about it. Oh, that's pretty high up. I think my... So the hard part with New Mutants is that it's had three distinct eras. It had Hickman, it had Brisson, and the two kind of overlapped. And then it had uh, Vida Ayala. Right. Uh, Rod Reese is the consistent throughout. So... But Although not the, on all, most of, I don't think uh, Rod Reese ever did an issue with Brisson. No, I think Flaviano did most of the art on that. Which was good. I like Flaviano's art too. So technically this is the, the Rod Reese New Mutants run. <laughs> right. That's, that's a great point. I, and I would think of it. Yeah, definitely true. Yeah. Um, that Hickman story was such a perfect bop and like, hey, it kind of was just like, um, it didn't change anything. It just kind of yeah. like explored things in a fun way. But it made me go, I want to see Hickman do space stuff. Totally. Um, the Brisson stuff would be, like, by itself very low ranked on this list, uh, probably just above the Percy stuff. I might be a little more generous, but definitely, like, this, the second half of the Brisson stuff was... was it was fine. It was I, okay. I say, and I say this with respect to, um, I think Brisson had a couple of, like, really good ideas that were, like, tough to thread the needle on about, like, yeah. uh, hate speech and stuff that was, like, his heart was in the right place, uh, but I don't know if he said anything that deep or profound to me. Yeah. And then, like, um, I don't envy him for trying to untangle Nova Roma, one of the shittiest parts oh, of X-Men lore. And it just, like, didn't get better. He didn't have, like, a big idea for it. It was just, like, it was the opposite of the vibe of the rest of the Grandiose run. It was, like, mm-hmm. so ungrandiose, And just be like, here's a comic, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then I, there's been some of the Vida Ayala issues that have not been my very favorite thing in the world. But, like, when they're, they're good, oh, my they're God. good. And just, like, redefining um, characters for me. Like, I really um, am, am fascinated by Shadow King now in a way that I've never been. Oh, yeah. That stuff's been... And picking up the promise of... And in using the combination of powers. Yeah, which has been... Uh, I thought that was going to be... That felt like it was going to be a big theme going into uh, Reign of X. Because that was also a big part of S.W.O.R.D. With, like, making the mutant engines. Mm-hmm. 
but I think um, Vita is the the writer who has done the, had the most fun with it, and then yeah. also like really made me feel like there was this spiritual thing happening. Like when the five used their powers in tandem and they felt this bliss or whatever. Lots yep. of mutants are feeling this when they're finding the correct ways to combine their powers, and that stuff is compelling as hell to me. That's like weird feelingsy shit, and I am here for it. Yeah. Vita Ayala, my friend, and how it's both how it can be used for for both positive and how it can be abused uh, and sort of used to kind of harm other people in the way that like the shadow King initially was manipulating these kids. Right. It gets into these issues of like consent and love. Yeah. Like these really tough uh, questions asked in a really fascinating new version of the mutant metaphor that I, that's, you know, I've never seen before. Yeah. So great stuff. New mutants has just been because it's been all over the place. It's it's a for me. It's a bad, it's a baffling, um, legacy because like yeah. Hickman's characterization of the new mutants was really fun. Uh in those six issues. Um Brisson sure used Glob Herman a bunch of times and it was nice to see him. Yeah. I liked Boom Boom in those. Yeah, Boom Boom was very likable. I just uh I'm glad they kept the numbering though. I hate it when they I, I enjoy the continuous numbering. Me uh, too. hundred uh, yeah. percent. So my number three, Trial of Magneto. Oh, well here's the place to talk about it. Yeah. Why did you have it so low? Um, you know, you're kind of making me regret it, but at the end of it, I felt like it was kind of flabby and meandering when it had such a sharp point to make. And, um, mm. I didn't enjoy all of the, um, the aside stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I really was interested in, um, in the fallout of the comic, which is what we're going to get, like, moving forward and everything. But the yeah. the most exciting moment of the whole series to me was the montage of uh, all the ways in which, like, Wanda revolutionized Greco in society by doing all the shit that she does. Yes. Um, yeah. And I would more, like, I don't... I didn't write the story and maybe this is the wrong way to go about it, but I almost would rather that happen kind of in the middle and we spend a lot of time exploring changing perceptions. Mm. I felt like a lot of the superhero battle pacing stuff felt perfunctory and beside the point. Yeah. That being said, I, I can sing its praises. I like it was important. Mm-hmm. I was gonna say I I understand that part too, and I having it another three. I real I struggled. I'm like I really want this to be here, but at the same time, I'm like, does it deserve to be all the way up here in the top three? And I think I came down on it being up here in the top three because it it just grabbed me in a way that a lot of these other books haven't. It I just I came away from Trial of Magneto just being like. What the fuck? Ha! Ah, ah. Ha! Well, I think it's the thing I was saying earlier about Leah Williams, and she's this is the best she's ever done it, and she's always very good about this. Mm-hmm. But she took one of the most reviled, like, continuity developments in Marvel corporate story history, and she turned it into a really compelling, fun new status quo, and mm-hmm. um, and it was a story. Like, I, and I guess well, we don't have to beat around the bush, full spoilers ahead, um... Scarlet Witch using like her powers to do time travel and chaos and all this interesting stuff that was some of the most gorgeous writing in all of X-Men in the last three years. Um, the data pages with the wheels like took my breath away. Oh, that was so cool. 
Um, and, um, but, um, Wanda, let me try, if I can explain this right, it's so weird and cool, uh, reaches back through time, and by using her magic, like, it captures all the souls of every mutant who ever died before the invention of Cerebro, puts a copy of their essence into Cerebro, and now they can resurrect any mutant who's ever died, from ancient Egypt, from the French Revolution, from, um, 15 minutes before he invented Cerebro, like, whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. And then there's, in the epilogue, um, we see uh, an example of how this is affecting people is North Star is talking to his husband, Kyle, the first gay marriage in comics. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were their marriage was a big deal, and they have not been interesting since, as a couple. Uh-huh. North Star then just explains this crazy bit of continuity that I had never heard of before from Alpha Flight, but I looked into it, and it's all real. That um, he adopted a baby at a point who then died, just like when we did such things in the 90s. Uh-huh. But because of Wanda's spell, it was discovered that that baby was a mutant, and now she's going to be resurrected. North Star and Kyle are expecting a daughter. And yeah. that is exactly what's great about Leah Williams' writing. The simultaneous, like, grabbing of weird old continuity and a mistake. Don't introduce a child just to kill her off for no reason. Mm-hmm. But that was affected by the consequences of this story, and now the married couple's expecting a baby, but it's complicated and superhero and not like a regular human baby because she died and was resurrected and has powers, and now we get to explore that. And just like, that is what, that's the Leah Williams guarantee, is she'll take any stupid bit of ill-informed continuity that may or may not have been written by Jeff Loeb or some such thing. Mm-hmm. And and the way she fixes it is a good story that is worth reading. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what was your number three? My number three, this is a crazy top three for us, is Hellions. Ah, I'm not surprised. I think it, it, it deserves that spot on your list. Hellions was the scumbag book. It will be remembered as the scumbag book that took everyone by surprise and made us love... Uh, Nanny or an orphan maker and wild child and John Gray Crow, uh, and whose name even was Empath and Havoc, <laughs> whose name was a racial slur before his name was John Gray Crow. Yep. Um, yeah, just like I think we, from mm-hmm. racial slur to just like cool guy who I want to read a million comics about. Yeah, I can't say much. And Sinister, Sinister's always a fun villain, and he played a really fun role here. And Quanon, Psylocke. Yeah. Yeah, and her relationship with uh, with Grey Crow is really cool, cool and fun, and and kind yeah. of the the note, the romantic note the series ended on. Um, yeah. But I just uh, I guess when I'm focusing on legacy, I keep on thinking about how characters or stories have been changed in ways that feels like it will last. Mm-hmm. And the reason I put Hellion so high was besides that I enjoyed the shit out of it. It's such a fun book, and Zeb Wells just deserves more kudos because he's so great. Mm-hmm. Um, that. Um, it did that with every single character, and it brought them from being like, carrier, you know, the, the least interesting character. Like when I saw the promo of that, I was like, "Are you fucking kidding me? Is there, are they just throwing <laughs> shit at the wall randomly?" Uh-huh. And um, by the end of it, like, I'm really interested to see Havoc, who's one of my least favorite X Men characters, written in the way he was here. One hundred percent. Um, so every character is the legacy of this book. Every character was like blessed by being touched by this book. Yeah, nothing more to say other than if you haven't read Hellions, seriously, go do that. Uh, I think I no. figured out what your top two is. Okay, uh, all right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna have you guess. I'm gonna say your number two is X Men by Jonathan Hickman, right? You would be correct. So let's talk about it. All uh, right. I mean, we talked about it a great deal in the first half of the episode about the yeah. I don't think formats. we really need to talk much more about it. I guess 
Hickman left a lasting legacy on all those characters, but what I think we really hope his legacy will be is um, more books that take that format and pacing. Yes. In the superhero yes. genre. And I think people are going to remember, of, of all of the issues, Crucible, I think is going to be one of the standout issues of this, of his whole run. Yeah. Hands Rock down. my world. Rock my world. All right. What's your number two? My number two is Marauders. Ah, ha ha. Um, I don't mean to celebrate that so much, but I had a feeling. Okay, well, I, I'm going to, I got some, I'm gonna, I, like, I want to close the book on Jerry Duggan's Marauders. Okay. Um, In the last couple of months when we've been doing this, Marauders has fallen down the list a little bit because it got um usurped by Hellions month in and month out. Mm-hmm. Um, because I was enjoying that book so much more, and because uh, since Hellfire Gala, also Marauders has lost a lot of steam. Yeah. Um, there's been, like, some... I've really enjoyed the issues because I really vibe with Duggan's sense of fun. Mm-hmm. So, like, there was, like, an issue where they were, like, fighting some dude in space and they all get uh, blasted out an airlock and then quickly they combine their powers to build a spaceship out of Iceman's ice. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, and, like, there's no lasting legacy there that didn't change anything significant for the characters, but as, like, an episode of the ongoing story of some mutants, that ruled. That was, like, exactly what I want. Mm-hmm. But, as you know, and our listeners now know, I uh, realized I was transgender in uh, 2020. I think Marauder started in 2019 or in 20, early 2020? Sorry, uh, 2020, it's 2022. Marauder started in 2020. I realized I was transgender in 2021. Uh-huh. And, um, and I've always related to and liked Kitty Pride, Kate Pride as a character, um... And Marauders, the characterization, you remember, this was back when uh, Kevin was on the podcast with us. It was, like, electrifying for me. Um, reading a Kitty Pride that whose characterization felt so right to me and such, like, a result of all of the different stories that had happened to her. Mm-hmm. To say nothing of, like, the uh, making her queerness and her messiness just, like, more uh, external and confirmed and whatnot. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are going to have a lot of different opinions about that, but, like, it was clear that that book was striking me when I was, like, thinking about some profound things and was, like, pretty important to me for those reasons. Like, it was a Mm -hmm. real, as I was thinking about myself, uh, Kitty Pride was becoming Kate Pride and thinking about herself. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, yeah, just, like, really vibed with me. And And after so long of her being written by as, like, a love interest for various male protagonists in this way that made her feel very objectified. (laughs) We even just talked about the Ultimate Universe version. Yeah, for example. Yeah. Bendis, in particular, always makes characters he's writing date Kitty Pryde. I think he was 13 at the same time as Kitty Pryde, and maybe that means something to him, and that's cool. I get it. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but as, like, a queer lady figuring her shit out, um, that Marauder's book just, like, really hit me at a time when, like, something was going to hit me like that, and it was that Marauder's book. Mm-hmm. I think Marauder's is more lasting legacy writ large rather than the personal one, uh, is that it's going to be... It's going to be the, the Kate Pride book. It's going to be the book that brought and redefined... Kitty and Kate in this new era and tried to make what was once subtext and, uh, you know, some of the the more out there interpretations, bringing it in, bringing it all together inside of a a kind of a messy book uh, about pirates that I personally never thought it really found its proper footing, but not in like a bad way. Like it was just bopping from adventure to adventure to adventure. Right. Uh, And... I wish it had done more, but that wasn't the book we got. 
And it's another one of those things I just like threw at you that time they built a spaceship out of ice. Yeah, exactly. And I can just do this for like, I remember that time that they uh, tortured Shaw and Lockheed ate his eyeball. And uh, you that remember might that, be the highlight issue. <laughs> do you remember that time when Callisto showed up and just scared the shit out of Pyro by throwing knives at Storm and Storm threw knives at her and then they embraced? Mm-hmm. Just, like, so many... Do you remember when Christian Frost just, like, kept on uh, an Iceman just were, like, in a submarine having a romantic date? I remember that. It was a book of moments. Yeah, yeah, it was a book of moments, and uh, those moments, like, really resonated personally for me, and I think really revitalized characters like uh, Kate Pride. Emma Frost was doing pretty well, but, like, steadied the yeah. ship on her. Uh, Bishop is much more interesting place. Iceman is in, like, a really st- steady, cool place right now. Mm-hmm. Um, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Ha ha ha. The the cast of that book was really well served by it. So I think that much like all these uh, high-tiered books, everyone in it will be defined by how well they were written in this era, I hope. Mm-hmm. And our number ones. Three, the perennial two, classic. One. Hawks, Powers of X and Powers of Ten. Yeah, you wouldn't say that at the same time. Our mutant power is not synch- synchronicity. Synchronicity? That's the one. My mutant power is not pronouncing <laughs> words. <laughs> Yeah, man, I've, like, read Hawks Box a number of times now. I have it in hardcover. Um, I don't think there. I mean, this entire... What more is there to say? What more is there to say? This entire episode is about how electrifying and exciting Hawks Box was, how that lasted for a bunch of years, and it was just, like, such a strong opener and such an exciting comic that it propelled all three of these years we're talking about and yeah. might still have fuel, fuel left in the tank. We'll see. We'll see. But the lasting legacy of Hawks Box... All this shit. All this. We've been doing this this segment for nigh on two years. I think of all the books, and clearly it has successfully stood up to the test of at least some time. Um, Hickman's, I guess his, uh, not his opus, but his uh, putting his stamp on the X-Men remains one of the best, if not the best, X-Men story in a long, long, long time. I said at the top, it's like a real contender for greatest of all time. Yeah. And it probably doesn't win greatest of all time, but not, I wouldn't consider as many things, that many things as serious a contender. Yeah. It was experimental. It was electrifying. It's revolutionary. I think it's a book that we're going to be talking about, even if no one talks about the Krakoa era, which I highly doubt, they will talk about this book for a long, long time. And, and we're going to keep talking about X-Men yeah. stuff. Like, we're not going to stop here. We really like it. That's why we keep talking about it. And I think our listeners like it, too, because they keep listening and we keep talking about it. Yeah. Uh, we're going to have to figure out what to do with these lists because it's going to grow notions. into the like 30s and 40s real soon. <laughs> I got, I got some notions. Um, in the meantime, Elias, if people uh, love hearing us talk about X-Men so much that they can't get enough and they want to hear it elsewhere, is there anywhere that people might be able to do that? You can find me on Twitter at Quetzalish. That's Q-U-E-T-Z-E-L-I-S-H. Uh, my mutant name can be found within that, but, you know, I've had to change it three or four times. There's been some reboots. One time I went by Shadowcat, and then no one really liked that. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, you can find me writing over at multiversitycomics.com as well. Uh, by the time this episode goes out, Riverdale will have returned from the ether, and, uh, you'll be able to read about me suffering every week. It'll be fun. Sounds Uh, good to me. Yeah. Jaina, where can they find you on the larger interwebs? 
I can be found uh, saying whatever's on my mind on twitter.com at rambling underscore moose. And my words and deeds are also recorded on multiversitycomics.com, which is a pretty great website. And I've recently also been published on Comic Book Herald, which, check it out. They're pretty cool, too. That they are. All right. And thus ends the Hickman era of X-Men. Kind of. Sort of. Maybe. Excelsior. Excelsior.